today is not just any chapel service, it's our fall trustee meeting. And it's a light to gather twice a year with the 35 men and women who serve this institution on behalf of more than 14 million Southern Baptists and about 47,000 congregations to hold this seminary in trust uh, to those churches. And so it's always sweet to gather together and reflect on what God has done, what I believe He will do to process business and to consider all this before the life and ministry of Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College. Uh, there's an additional sweetness to today in this meeting because we're able to celebrate together 10 years of God's work here through the For the Church vision. And uh, to reflect together last night and then some this morning uh, is just additionally sweet and pleasing to me. Uh, it's been a nostalgic few days for me and uh, the past week especially as um, by the hour people have been sending me photos of myself and uh, our kids from 10 years ago. And like you look at these and think, oh my goodness, wh- where have the years went? And so it's been sweet, but also with a tinge of a bitterness along the way as we just reflected on God's kindness, but also on how quickly the years go by. At the end of the service today, we get to make a couple special presentations and announcements. But in the course of the sermon today, this is going to be part reflection on our past, uh, part reflection on our future, and then part meditation from Ephesians chapter 4 on our perennial charge from our Lord and His Word about the church and our responsibility to train ministers for the church. This morning, we're thinking about, until every church healthy, five strategic priorities for five consequential years. But before we do that, I just want to walk down memory's lane for a few minutes. And I do so understanding that the majority of folks in the room this morning, we're not here 10 years ago, perhaps eight years ago, or even five years ago, and perhaps even three years ago. But it's important that we together remember God's kindness on the institution, his providential favor that we've experienced, because we are stewards of these things. Ten years ago, we came here with five young children and Karen, always the most beautiful woman in every room. Ten years later, that's not true. It's doubly true. Ten years ago, the seminary was dead broke and I stressed every dollar we spent. Ten years later, we're financially strong and I stress every dollar we spend. Ten years ago, I was too young and too naive to receive the challenges, nor to be scared off by them, and I needed a team. I needed someone who would come with me and who was younger than I was, more naive than I was, who lacked wisdom as I lacked, and a person who was a criminal mastermind if they were not saved. And I looked up and saw Charles Miss standing there, and I thought, there's my guy. And Charles and Ashley and then their two girls moved to Kansas City to join us. Ten years ago, my wife and our five kids and Charles and Ashley and their two daughters then, we spent all day one Saturday recruiting one potential MDF student. And we heard this endangered species was coming to Kansas City to consider the campus known as a prospective student. And we cleared the decks and we spent all day one Saturday with this young couple and we toured the campus, we ate meals together, we spent the whole day. And at the very end of that Saturday, he casually mentioned, oh, we're leaving here on a road trip to go visit Southern Seminary and Southeastern Seminary as we consider where we're going to study. And I thought, I have just wasted my Saturday. (laughs) Oh, ye of little faith. Ten years later, that prospective student is a proud Midwestern Seminary alumnus one in whom we're proud of as well, Ken Blackwell, who's faithfully serving a church in the St. Louis area. Ten years ago, we didn't have enough money to rightly pay the people who had served here. And ten years later, we're so awed God, by God's favor that, that we'd all serve here for free. But let's not get crazy about it. 
Ten years ago, I sought a cabinet who had become like family to me, senior colleagues, men who had served with me, and we develop a depth of relationships, and they become like family, and these men are. They all are like sisters to me, as I remind them. Ten years ago, Robin Hathaway called me to tell me that he did not know if we could meet payroll, and I was left in disbelief. Ten years later, Robin called me to tell me he was running for SBC president, and I was left in disbelief. <laughs> Ten years ago, our facilities, oh, our facilities, our facilities, the administrative building looked like a National Guard armory. The library looked like a records depository you find in a failed communist state. The classrooms looked like torture chambers as opposed to places of learning. This beautiful chapel was a, a stalled-out construction project, a shell that desperately needed finishing but without funds to do so. The then chapel was an all-white echo box that uncomfortably seated about 100 people, and now it's become the Spurgeon Library. The area then designated as a student center was in about an 800-square-foot area that could have doubled as a hothouse. It featured a warped ping-pong table, a broken pool table, an unused foosball table, and an abundance of Costco couches. And you could walk into most any room on campus and be struck by how much the carpet resembled flooring at the Jiffy Lube. But what we lacked in facilities, we clearly made up for in geese. Do I have a witness? All the geese. The campus was so overrun by geese that it's as though it was a providential design for the geese and their remains to confuse us and not let us see the disoriented state of the buildings themselves. I've been meeting with people and said, how do we get the geese off campus? What can be done about these things? And they were like, it's like every, every geese in the Western Hemisphere was staying here. And uh, we began to investigate what we could do. And I remember the day uh, when a gentleman walked in my office and said, I said, I found this company known as the Geese Police. And they say for $2,000, they can get all the geese off our campus, but I know we can't afford $2,000. And I said, like $2,000, like a day, a week, an hour? He said, well, it's a six-week process, and it's $2,000 for six weeks. I said, you're right, we can't afford it. But like, if I have to rob Panda Express to pay for it, we're going to afford it. And the pleasure we all felt when the geese police came, and we saw in a moment thousands of geese flying from our campus to a neighboring location. <laughs> and the power that gave us and the relief we felt. <sighs> Ten years ago, accreditation agencies were swarming, bill collectors were calling, our constituency was skeptical. And by any estimation, the seminary was in a challenging place. I would say we had nowhere to go but up, but that's not true. It is true we had nowhere to look but up. Ten years ago, we had a promise that Christ would build his church. We had a mission attached to that promise that we would be for the church. We had a seminary community ready to move forward, a Missouri Baptist convention supporting us, the Kansas-Nebraska Convention supporting us, and Southern Baptist churches rooting for us. And on the ground, we had Glenn Ferris cheerfully delivering the mail. We had Rodney Harrison conniving to help with enrollment growth. We had Mindy Ackerite doing the work of three people, Vicki Hauser hustling applications, Gary Crutcher working overtime to not let me down, and Steve Andrews unnecessarily prolonging faculty meetings. Thor Matson, the polymath, was wearing multiple hats, doing anything and everything we needed. 
Ten years ago, Dave McAlpin was at the cabinet table. Now he's at heaven's table. Ten years ago, Alan the Branch had been Aubrey and Russ and Umstadt were preaching in churches. And Tom Johnston was leading evangelism teams seven days a week. And Mike McMullen was soothing our ears with his British accent. And Alan Tomlinson was mesmerizing students in the biblical backgrounds. Fusion students were marching around campus with great commission passion. Charles Smith and our growing team was meeting with me most afternoons to cook up new initiatives. And though the calendar said it was late fall and the winter air was coming, in my heart I knew Aslan was on the move. Dr. Yates would pack up his family and move north. Dr. Dusing would show up clad in green, ready to bring our academics into the 21st century. Pat Hudson would bounce around the president's office wearing multiple hats, and often doing so with a back brace. Sam Berry and Camden Pulliam would permit themselves to be robbed out of the youth department somewhere and come dream with us. John MacArthur kindly interrupted sabbatical to come deliver our first Spurgeon lectures. Off-campus, supporters, some of whom insist upon remaining anonymous, began to give this institution, help us pay our bills, help us meet payroll, Help us begin to dream about what God could do before us. People like Wayne and Bernadine Lee and Gene and Joe Downing and Bill and Connie Jenkins and the Mathena family and our chairman Lee and Tammy Robertson and so many more stepped up. Then Jim Craigenbring was a friend and donor. And after we took all the money we could get from him, then we invited him to come work here for us. And I felt like we had reached peak divine provision and a restaurant in Oklahoma City one morning in about the year 2014. I was there with Charles Smith having breakfast with Gene Downing. And there was like no one in this restaurant. It seemed to be just the three of us. And I stepped away from the, the breakfast table to go into the men's room. And I went into the men's room and on the floor was a check laying on the ground. And it was face down. And I thought someone has left a check. And I thought the appropriate thing to do is to pick it up and take it to the cashier. And I picked it up and having a glance at the check, and it said $1,000. I looked to the left, and it was made out to Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in that moment, I thought, Lord, you are literally dropping checks from heaven <laughs> to meet our needs. And then I saw it was made out from Steve Dighton. I remembered that Charles had been with Steve recently, and Charles had went to the men's room before me. And so this is not divine providence. This is Charles's carelessness leaving a check in the floor. <laughs> In 2014, we launched our first For the Church conference. Worried to death whether anyone would show up. And I mean that without hyperbole. One worried to death whether or not anyone would come to campus for such an event. I remember Charles and I talking about who we would have come as speakers. And he said, well, you know, I thought about inviting this guy, Jared Wilson. I said, I don't know much about Jared. And and I, I said, what can you tell me? And Charles said, I don't know much about him either, but he has like 20,000 Twitter followers. And so I said, sign him up. <laughs> Jared would come to a conference, but then he would shortly move his whole family here and be an instrumental part of what we're doing. And then you wake up one day, you look around and you see these people, the Rosalind Mustons, the Jared Cathcarts, the Jordan Wades, the Sky Singletons, the people who make this institution what it is. And you wake up one day and you realize that God has given us an incredible group of gifted and godly individuals. And though success is awesome, you realize you'd prefer to lose with this team than to win with another, I think. 
you realize seriously that the people he's given us here are so very special. And through all that recollection, there's a name you didn't hear mentioned, and that's my name. Because the first rule of leadership is it's not about the leader. And in this case, it's very much not about the leader. It's about God's kind providence and a gifted and godly group of people he has blessed us with who are devoted, laser-like, for the church and for the kingdom. It would be failure of gratitude not to revel in God's kindness on this institution this week. It would be a failure of stewardship not to recommit ourselves anew to all that he has entrusted to us. And so with that in mind, I want to just draw our attention briefly to Ephesians chapter 4 together and to think about these verses, especially verse 7, where Paul says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. As it says, he ascended on high and led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now his expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fulfill all things. So what's this talking about here? So talking about where Christ is seated in his proclamation of victory. And then we're getting before us, presented before us, this, this reminder of just the gravity and the glory of our work here of the fact that what we're doing matters. What you're doing matters. How you're giving matters. From trusteeship, to donations, to instruction, to caring for the facilities, to administrative oversight, and all that goes with our work, it matters. How does it matter? We find in Ephesians chapter 4 this promise that Christ has gifted his church. So if you ever see a person who's serving really well, a pastor and someone says, you know, he thinks he's God's gift to the church. Well, he kind of is. Because God has blessed his church. And notice what he says in verse 11. He, Christ, has given some as apostles and some as prophets. And we believe these to be these early temporal office here, offices and before the canon is complete. And some as evangelists, and some as pastors, and some as teachers. We do so much here, but so much of it goes back to these three offices, evangelists slash missionaries, pastors, shepherds of the flock of God, and teachers, those who teach. Notice verse 12. Why did he give us this? Why did Christ establish these offices? And why has he generation after generation furnishing his church with individuals in them? until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man to be the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness in Christ. What is this end? It is an end unto maturity. The end is until every church healthy. We're seeking this this maturity spiritually. We're devoting our lives to producing not just a bunch of graduates, but well-formed graduates. We're devoting our lives not just to teaching interesting classes, but life-changing classes. We're devoting our lives not to just preaching fascinating sermons, but spiritually transformative ones. 
Because we look around and we see a church in need. We see churches in need. We see a denomination in need. And we look around and, and, we, and we see the, the nations in need. And we ask ourselves, what is our role in this? How do we serve? How do we lead? How do we support? And we do so by remembering that priority number one is until every church healthy. Maturity taking place as a result no longer no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine where there's a stability theologically and a spiritual stability so we don't fall prey to the trickery of men. We don't fall prey to craftiness or deceitful scheming. We're people who speak the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the dead, is the head, even Christ, from the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do you see this picture of not just local church ministry, but of our ministry as those committed to the local church ministry? There's a gravity and a glory to all of this. And thus what we're doing matters. And so it matters so much that we should do it with conviction and energetically, and hopefully, day by day. This morning, our board in the formal business session adopted an updated five-year strategic plan, strategic priorities for the seminary. And I want to rehearse these with you briefly with the broader seminary community here so you understand what we are after. Five strategic priorities for five consequential years. Priority number one is mission faithfulness. This is the predictable first point. But it is also the necessary first point. You see, ultimately, there are two types of seminaries in North America. Not large and small, not Protestant or Catholic, not well-endowed or not well-endowed. The two primary categories are those that are confessional and those that are not confessional. The confessional institution is an institution that has governing documents, doctrinal statements that aren't just on the books or a a reference to a past era, but they are living and active and regulative for the institution, for the seminary. So when parents and prospective students want to know what they will be taught, there will be no misunderstanding or lack of clarity about what this institution believes and about what we teach. The Western Seminary and Spurgeon College's greatest commitment is to the Bible as the Word of God, which for us is manifested in our commitment to hold our four confessional statements, the Baptist faith and message, the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy, the Danvers statement on biblical manhood and womanhood, and the Nashville statement on human sexuality and gender, and to do so with full integrity and with firm conviction. Additionally, we prioritize faithfulness to our for the church and for the kingdom mission, which extends from what we believe to why we exist as an ongoing commitment to our primary constituency, Southern Baptist churches. Ten years ago, I moved to Kansas City, as you gathered, and I found myself in the early months here getting to know different presidents of colleges and seminaries in the region and just kind of doing the neighborly thing, introducing myself and being the the curious one that I am, wanting to kind of hear a little bit more about their work and what they're doing and not doing and what's going well and what's not going well. And I found myself in one of these conversations in in year one, uh, visiting with the president of, again, a a regional seminary and uh, and talking. And I, I went to that conversation knowing that that institution is very to the left theologically. Their faculty is theologically left, which means they're culturally to the left and just a very different scenario than who we are here. But I also knew that that institution um, 
the churches of their denomination weren't that far to the left. Not to be confused with the Southern Baptist Convention, no, but, but generally we're, we're kind of more run-of-the-mill, kind of middle-of-the-road churches. And, uh, and I asked the president, I, we're just having a very frank conversation. I said, I'm, I'm just curious how, how you're handling this, because I know your faculty and you know, we know where you guys are theologically, but your churches are clearly to the right of you. Like, how, how does that work out on the ground here? And the president said to me, and I quote you, and I'll never forget, said, Jason, we intend to hang out in the mushy middle as long as we can. Brothers and sisters, that is a, a moral failure to lead institution through theological subterfuge and constituency subterfuge. But it's not just a failure of stewardship. I say to you this morning, it is practically and pragmatically an impossibility. And it will be all the more so in the season ahead. And so for us, we are not reluctant to be clear about who we believe. We are eager to be clear about what we believe. In an age of doctrinal confusion and compromise, we will be clear and convictional. In an age that mocks the idea of an inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God, we say God has spoken, His Bible is divinely inspired, and it is truth without any mixture of error. In an age of grievance and retribution, we will be redemptive, pursuing gospel hope and unity. In an age that suggests gender is not recognized at birth, but identified at some later stage, we say that God has made us in His image, male and female, and that gender is His gift, and that it is good. In an age that says marriage is up for any definition or no definition at all, we say that marriage is ordained by God and is a conjugal covenantal relationship between a man and a woman and is intended by God for life. In an age that finds the exclusivity of the gospel puzzling and even repugnant, we point people to Jesus with confidence and hopefulness, and we say that Jesus and Jesus alone saves. And we don't look for a faculty who can sign our confessional statements. We look for faculty members who have a public track record of convictional advocacy for these truths we so hold so dear. Our mission faithfulness is what we believe. It's also why we exist, our further church vision. For us, the local church is not a distraction to our work. The local church is our work. Pastors calling this institution are not hindering our efforts. They are our efforts. And so we are going to be faithful about that as long as we can. As long as God gives us strength, we will. Secondly, second strategic priority is that of student success. Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College's greatest urgency is to produce graduates in sufficient numbers and of sufficient quality to meet the needs of Southern Baptist churches. Thus, we prioritize a robust enrollment because of the growing needs of our churches and mission boards, the urgency of the Great Commission, and our commitment to train God-called men and women for the church and for the kingdom. Yet, quality of graduates equals quantity of graduates in importance. We therefore seek to train the whole person, preparing students for a lifetime of faithful gospel service, wherever that is, on the mission field or in the marketplace, with a communications degree from Spurgeon College or an MDiv from the seminary, with a PhD or certificate degree. We're giving ourselves to training students holistically, and we also are doing so urgently believing that the more students we train and graduate, the better the church and the kingdom will be served. And so while other seminaries and institutions are retrenching 
we're going to maintain an appropriate sense of institutional ambition, believing that our calling is big and we're going to pursue it with all that we have. Third strategic priority, faculty strength. The Western Seminary and Spurgeon College's greatest strength is the faculty God has assembled here. And it is one of the clear signs of his favor on us. Our accomplished faculty isn't just an institutional advantage to enjoy. It's an, it's an institutional stewardship to exercise. We thus prioritize the essential marks of a faithful faculty, theological integrity, spiritual maturity, scholarly accomplishment, student devotedness, local church focus, and great commission commitment. The heroes of this institution are the faculty who serve here. The books you write, the classes you teach, the students you mentor, that enables us to do what we do because that is what we do. And there is no institutional leader who has ever been prouder of the faculty serving his institution than this leader is today of the faculty serving this institution. And our commitment is to continue to prioritize your well-being, to selectively add to your number only those who deepen and enrich our instructional staff, not those who might compromise it. Number four, a flourishing community. Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College's greatest source of joy is the flourishing community God has built here. We're not a loose collection of employees and students. We are people committed, joined together in community for spiritual growth, service, and ministry. And this commitment reaches beyond our physical campus to our global campus around the world. We believe the entirety of the campus community, including each student and employee in every corner of the globe, is made in the image of God, divinely appointed to be a, at Midwestern Seminary in Spurgeon College, and best positioned to flourish when the entire community flourishes. So we're saying that if you serve here, you're valued. If you study here, you're valued. If you're a trustee or a donor who stewards or supports here, you're valued. And we consider you not as an accidental group of people who've sort of fallen into place, but as a people divinely assembled by God for such a time as this. And we're going to do our best to steward that, to exercise that stewardship wisely and to care for you generously and to see you and your family in a position to flourish to the very best of our ability because we want nothing less than that for you and your families. Fifth strategic priority, intergenerational stewardship. The Western Seminary and Spurgeon College's greatest stewardship is to God and to Southern Baptist churches, past, present, and future. We have been called by God and charged by our churches to make our work an enduring work, serving Christ and His church until He returns. We thus prioritize a robust business model that emphasizes financial strength, as marked by a commitment to avoid indebtedness and to grow our endowment. And as we do, we recognize that we are to be found as faithful stewards and to convey this institution into the future with ample resources to carry on our work for the glory of God and the good of the church until Christ returns. In other words, we're doing our best to pay it forward. And we do so not because that's like some financial counselors told us to do that. We do that out of a profound sense of stewardship, understanding that we live in houses we not build, did not build. We drink from wells we did not dig. And we want to deepen those wells and keep up to space those houses and to project forward into the future an institution that with each passing year is stronger in every appropriate institutional category than the year before. We know that governments 
print money. Institutions don't. We steward what God has given us, and we want to do so to the very best of our ability. So what is the theme of all of this? What do we say? The theme of the past two days or the theme of the past decade is this, God's providence. Karen and I, this past Monday night, were taking our two sons to the Monday night football game at Airhead Stadium. An exhilarating experience, more so than Sunday's game. We were there making our way, and traffic was pretty thick as it is, and stuck and going slow and questioning what time we might make it to the stadium. And all of a sudden, to my left, I see a motorcade carrying the governor, the mayor, whomever, to Airhead. And it's like, police car, dark SUV, police car, dark SUV, police car. And I'm thinking, why not one more dark SUV? So we swing over there. And we become an unofficial part of this motorcade. And we combine about an hour of traffic sitting into like a 60-second sprint. And in that moment, I thought to myself, is this not a symbol of God's providence in this institution? <laughs> not about getting me to air ahead, but about the fact we are here behind the wheel of a car doing the best we can humanly. And he has so kind went before us and paved the way. And we went further and higher and deeper than any of us dreamt 10 years ago. That's because of his kind providence. At the 1932 Democratic National Convention, Franklin Delano Roosevelt broke precedent and flew to Chicago to receive in person his party's nomination. It'd be the first of his four nominations he'd received. He willed himself to the podium and those iron leg braces with the nation in the depths of the Great Depression and all the misery and fear it had brought. He famously said, there's a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. More poetically, Shakespeare famously wrote in Julius Caesar, when Brutus spoke to Cassius, he said, There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. God has providence has called us at this moment of destiny to step up to the call and to be faithful. God in his kindness has given us 10 years of an incoming tide when the rest of the world theological education is experiencing an outgoing one. But more biblically, Scripture teaches us this, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. This decade demonstrates that an imperfect man serving an imperfect people has nonetheless had an angel riding in this dust cloud. And I believe that. And so, brothers and sisters, let's renew ourselves anew today to recommit ourselves to this great task, that if the Lord tarries one day, we not be found necessarily as the largest seminary or the most financially robust seminary or the one with the most beautiful facilities or the most accomplished faculty, but we be found having been faithful. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for the stewardship you've given us. And Father, we believe with all of our hearts, every blessing we have is from you and only from you. And Father, we pray this morning that we would renew ourselves to this profound stewardship, that we would not lose a sense of the majesty of our work here 
that we would not lose a keen sense of the glory of your call in our lives here. And that, Father, you would be pleased to do a new and fresh work in us, that we would be renewed in our service, that we would feel each one of us in our hearts and our lives a deepened sense of joy and conviction and commitment over what we get to do in the future you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.